I think that I learned more about this identity crisis that I'm not alone based on this exhibition, actually, because maybe maybe this is a similarity between us, but I didn't quite feel Filipino enough and I didn't feel American enough in being here. Hello and welcome to Push and Play, a podcast where we discuss the intersection between design, culture, and social issues. I'm your host, Danielle Chen. In today's episode, I have my dear friend, Anna Mangote Baluka, joining me in a conversation to talk about how one's identity could shape the way someone approaches their design and the importance of community building in design. Anna is a multidisciplinary designer that creates to explore the world. Her background in industrial design and urban studies puts her work at the intersection of community building and creative problem solving. Above everything else, her primary objective is to work on solutions that have the most potential in impacting our culture and society in a positive way. She aims to create work that provokes its audience to question the norms of our society. She is a proponent of using design as a medium to weave culture, history, and philosophies to create impactful products and solutions. Her design philosophies come from the power of being responsible to create culture through objects. As a generalist designer and artist, her work takes on a spectrum of forms. Her exhibit in New York City was with Data Through Design in 2019, a gallery during New York City's Data Week. Before that, her products have been exhibited at Fry Art Museum in Seattle, Seattle Design Festival, and presented for the ASEAN Furniture Design Awards. She empowers and activates fellow designers and creatives to be an activist through her speaking engagements in the U.S. and the Philippines. She's currently one of the leaders of IDSA's inaugural DEI Council. She's experimenting and strategizing meaningful products as the founder and creative director of Lowercase Innovation. She's also helping ensure the future of design as an educator at the Pratt Institute. Welcome to Push and Play, Anna. Thank you for having me here. Anna, is it true that you're against all types of capitalism that you name your creative studio Lowercase Innovation? <laughs> yes, definitely. I, th- that's true. I, I would say more or less. Uh, I wouldn't completely say all types of capitalism just because I still participate in some of it, you know, um, but that, that, that's a big driver for, for the name of my studio. <laughs> That is really funny. Um, Yeah, I actually learned about this um, during your presentation this year at the International Design Conference. um, And I just found it super fascinating um, that you, because it seems like that you, um, your personal branding and identity is a really big part of the work that you create. Um, Is this true? I I definitely like to think so, or at least I I try to aim it in that way. I think kind of like working for yourself, you have so much more flexibility in what you do and how you do it. So it's it's like like my mission or my purpose, at least, is the one thing that 
kind of guides me as my North Star, if that makes sense. So I wanted to integrate that in in every way possible, if I can. Mm-hmm. And has your personal value impacted how you select your work and clients? Yes, definitely. So um, actually, like the the main thing of lowercase, well, not, maybe not quite main thing, but um, the very first time I attended the Women in Design conference was the, the very first one that they hosted. And I heard Micah Evers speak about how she started Mike and Micah and how the first year of it was completely dedicated for them having full creative freedom and to just explore anything and everything that they want to do. So for lowercase, I, I, I'm giving myself three years to just do anything and everything that I want to do. Um, and I thought that third year was ending this year, but actually the pandemic really screwed up my, um, my vision of time. Mm-hmm. So that's actually third year would be next year. So by December of 2022, um, next year, I need to figure out kind of like how to take on clients. But for now, I'm just kind of developing products on my own and uh, working on projects that I find very interesting. Um, And that has really guided. So like my personal value in some ways has really guided the work that I create for because it's essentially like unless I find something meaningful then I don't really work on it I admire that so much um I mean I personally have never really worked for myself besides you know all the other like extracurricular activities like this podcast yeah I just want to say like I I think it's incredible that you kind of give yourself like these three years slash four years timeline to allow yourself to explore how your personal value can kind of drive yourself to do the meaningful work or to do work that you find to be meaningful. Thank you. I mean, (laughs) deciding to work on my own kind of came out of necessity and frustration because of like horrible job experiences in the past. Mm -hmm. But like, like the, the presentation of Micah at that conference really hit me because I, I think that even just even like like being in the industry, I don't know if you feel this way or hopefully I'm not alone in feeling it. But I, I feel I, I notice that in everyone is a designer when you're working on a on a project. The client is a designer. They have a vision of how they want they want to create whatever it is, and then you're limited by a lot of other factors like budgets etc and so you kind of lose a lot of the creative freedom and I one of my professors at Columbia once mentioned that like the rawest form of your creativity is when you're a student because you have all of this like creative freedom and so I wanted to hold on to that (laughs) as long as I can because I think if, if, if you're building a studio on your own I like what's the point if you don't integrate some part of you in there you know like like and in a meaningful way I mean I think a lot of people are able to just do it so naturally because of their skills and their talent Mm -hmm. but like for me because this came out of frustration and like (laughs) my um my philosophies on how capitalism has affected the products that we create etc I it just seems it seems like it would have been hypocritical for me to just follow the natural path of 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 however people 
started their design studios, if that makes sense. For sure. Has there been any sort of challenges that you found um, since you transitioned from like working for someone to working for yourself? I definitely a lot of it is my personality. I think that I came like while my friends have said I'm very brave. <laughs> um, there, I, I still have a lot of confidence issues. And um, so learning how to handle business and how to speak up for myself is something that you kind of have to do as you get the experiences of doing it. But I, I think that it's, it's so much more rewarding when you do it for yourself. Um, of course, I wouldn't like sugarcoat it, like by like, figuring out the finances is definitely one of the hardest uh, of the hardest thing, which is why I set myself up for like that three year deadline. And then like, hopefully if, if nothing comes out of it or something, then I'll sell my soul back to like <laughs> the common ways of however designers make money nowadays. Um, but yeah, like I, I think a lot of it is like, like when, when you work for yourself, it's like you have to be so much more aware of your weaknesses and your strengths. And um I don't think that I was very strong on that like a couple of years ago, like uh, as mission oriented as I am, that only gets you so far because you have to know yourself, like how you deal with conflicts and successes and just be super mindful. Do you feel this experience of uh, taking it on your own um, or working for yourself has helped you build more confidence? Yeah, definitely. Because I think that like when you see a project through it's like it's it's very rewarding and it kind of it gives you a certain level of validation that I don't think that you would get from working for other people you know because like I feel like when you work for other people it's just like oh cool I get my salary and then that's kind of that's kind of it even like I I know I have friends that work in design teams and then they haven't touched their portfolios in like a couple of years. And, um, and because they work in big design agencies, they don't know which ones are appropriate to put in the portfolio because they don't quite feel like the ownership of like having done it end to end. And as a member of the team, which I think is, is like something that I would feel too, if I was in a design agency, I know that that's not true and we should like work on not feeling that, but um but if you if you're kind of like a a one woman show everything is on you and so it it helps with the confidence in a way that it's like i didn't realize that i could do this like then now i'm able to see kind of like my capabilities and it's like within reach rather than just like i hope i can kind of way um i think that like like just just to kind of tie in the theme of identity I want to say that when you work for companies like your identity as a designer seems so much more stable also just because you know exactly what to call yourself like for me every time I have to write my bio it's like I do this and this and this and a lot of my friends that are kind of in the periphery of the design industry like PMs etc it's like all her background is in design but she does this and this and this and I'm kind of just like why do we have to be very, very specific based on a task when it's like designers are skilled to do anything creative? Absolutely. 
So earlier this year, you and I participated in a panel discussion called Racing Design, Understanding API Designers' Experience. Uh, it's actually how we first met uh, virtually. Yes. Yeah. And at the panel discussion, we discussed quite a lot of um, how our identity and cultural backgrounds have shaped the way that we approach our design. And I would like to start by asking you how you would identify yourself. So as far as like ethnicity or race, <laughs> like I, I just call myself like Filipino American, which actually it took me a while to even call myself that because I grew up in the Philippines up until I was 13 and then I moved in the U.S. But now I've lived here longer than in Manila. And I've never, I, 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 w- I would say that I've never lost my, um, my connection with my home country. I'm a dual citizen, for example. Um, my family moved here mainly because of educational purposes. Like my dad really wanted us to have, um, to be educated in the U.S. And he's an American citizen. So it just made sense to um, bring us over. And my mom had always stayed in the Philippines. And so we always went back home, like almost every year to go visit her. Um, that's essentially how I got <laughs> to to the U.S. It's, yeah, it's it's mainly like, education if anything that's also related to some sort of like climbing the social ladder because um in the filipino culture if you're educated in the western countries you're almost immediately on a higher social class than if you had stayed in the philippines no matter how good the education or like if you went to a private school over there so educated here in the U.S. for middle school and high school and then I briefly went to London for like two years for college and then (laughs) that was like the housing recession back in like 2007 2008 and ended up back in the U.S. because the conversion of like the U.S. dollar to the British pound was just a little bit too insane and I didn't want to put my family into like paying for that tuition and then eventually made my way and got my BS in industrial design after. How did you decide on studying industrial design as your major? Yeah, that, that's kind of a long-winded story as well. Um, my, uh, my family's more like engineering and business. And so I've always been into like a very technical background, if, if that makes sense. Um, but when I was in high school, I interned for an architecture firm. And that was the first time that... Um, I saw the intersection of like form and function in such a beautiful way that I I really wanted to pursue architecture. But around this time was when there was a shift in the, I think, design education. And so my mentor actually was like, if you want to be an architect, um, having just a bachelor's isn't going to cut it nowadays. You need to have a master's too. And so she suggested that while I'm in... um, while I'm just pursuing my undergrad, that I should just do whatever it is I want because a bachelor's in architecture typically takes five years instead of the typical four. So if I'm going to need a master's anyways afterwards, then maybe it's a good time to just explore. So my school in London, I took um, arts, design, and media, which is mainly graphic design, typography, all that sort of fun stuff. But even one of my um, counselors then 
they actually said it like, oh, if you wanted to be an architect, you really, while, while you're attending the school, you really need to push yourself and just kind of look at design in, in all the ways that you can and explore um, London as much as possible because this, the school's resources is very limited when it comes to design. Even, like they, had, they have that major, but their, their um, specialty is international business and international development only because they they are an international school so it just it, it made sense and um so eventually like after the second year I got a little bit kind of hungry for architecture because there was only one 3d design class and I've already taken it and then everything else was like graphics so that was also one of the reasons why I transferred out it's like I, I don't want to pay for another two years in this school and not really get the most out of my education. Um, so I intentionally was going to go to UW, uh, but they, at this year, they were not accepting transfer students. And I was like, no, I really just want to graduate. So I ended up at the Art Institute and I was just like, I just want to have a degree, whatever it might be. And because of my background was like graphic design at that point, I thought that was like the easy way out. But um, in one of the foundational classes, um, one of my friends, uh, he he's an industrial design major and he was sitting next to me and I was just kind of like, what is industrial design? And he talked about laser cutters and like the CNC machines, et cetera. And I was just like, wait, I want to do that. So I immediately went to um, my counselor at that time and said, I want to change majors. And actually um, he tried to pursue me into doing interior design instead because he was like, oh, if you want to be an architect, you want to be an interior designer instead of an industrial designer. And I was just like, no, I don't think that that's true because interior design kind of works on negative space and I want to do something in the positive space. And I really had to argue that like, I want to be an industrial design. And um, I don't know if it's gender roles, but I did notice that interior designer students are mainly women and industrial designer students at that time at the Art Institute were mainly men. Like I was like one of five females or something like that. So I like to think that it wasn't and it was just kind of like a what do you call it like an internal bias that he didn't know that he had but like when I walked into that industrial design um into his office I was very intentional knowing that what I wanted was industrial design because it's like I've always known what interior design is and I never wanted to do it so you know what I mean so it's like but like it wasn't the laser cutters or the 3d printers but like just the way that my friend had described what industrial design was I was like no that's what I want to do it's like making something 3d and tactile and for some reason it was one of those things that I was just so sure of like I I, I remember I didn't even have to take any time at all into like deciding if this was the thing for me like I was in class with this friend the morning and then literally went to the deans like at lunchtime I love that you mentioned about your your passion and your love for architecture quite a lot. I was wondering if partially the reason why you studied urban designs as part of your graduate study was there's anything to do with um, your passion for architecture? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that like 
even uh, like I generally admire architects mainly because I understand exactly what they're doing and I feel like it's always like problem solving and because I grew up not knowing what industrial design was I think I mainly thought of it as more of like mechanical engineering I think that I architecture was the first time that I understood what design is like in the way that I want to see it right because like fashion design exists and graphic design exists but like a graphic design I had a little bit more understanding just because that was like the thing that I studied for two years and that's when I like kind of was exposed to very clever functional illustrations and marketing ads etc and fashion design to me was always just sort of like really cool clothing um but architecture the way that I saw it was like it was problem solving and um growing up in Manila I don't think that back in the day I didn't think that my country had a very uh strong identity of like the architectural styles and there's a lot of problems of like homelessness or even just kind of um like regulating housing uh so what led me to architecture was aiming to solve something like in the housing department. But I got into urban design because I spent a whole year in Manila before, um, before that opportunity. And when I was there, there was a lot of things that I think the city was missing. One, there was no real office, like no urban planning office. Um, it's just like the land or whatever we're, bu- we're building is literally just powered by whoever can afford to develop um there's you apply for permits for like developing something but no one is kind of like thinking that's enough malls (laughs) let's build something more on the housing instead you know so that's kind of like why I wanted to pursue urban planning at the time was like oh how do people come up with permits who do they give it to and why, why are there limits, et cetera. Um, at the end of the day, like the, the program that I was in was just kind of like a, a teaser. It was like a one-year uh, graduate certificate. Um, and I, I would say that I took as much as I can. But what I learned is that the program at Columbia, which is where I went, is not quite the kind of urban design that I wanted to pursue. It was mainly about policy writing and a lot of legalese and law that um, didn't really feed my curiosity when it comes to like solving urban issues. Mm-hmm. It felt quite intangible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and at the end of the day, like reading a lot of like legal stuff was just kind of like not it for me. I, I had like one law class when I was there and it was cool to learn about this. But professionally, I'm like, I don't think that I can keep going. Like, I, I don't think that this is a skill set I want to learn more about, like, after this part. I, I personally don't think that I would have any power as an urban planner if I was doing something legal. I would feel like I'd need to be a politician in order to do something. And so it just seems so out of reach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for sharing your background. It's always fascinating for me to learn about how people get into design and how some of the designers decide to pursue other fields of study. So you recently curated an exhibition called 
Baigai at Buhe, which means objects in life. The exhibition was designed to tell the never-ending story of the identity crisis of members of the Filipino diaspora through the objects that help shape their behavior and culture. In the exhibition description, he wrote, we celebrate our struggles and our wings through the objects that surround us and those that we miss. First of all, congratulations on your exhibition. It was so very beautifully curated and received. Thank you for naming it and talking about it. Of course. So I'm curious to hear, first of all, to hear about how you came about or how you came across this opportunity in the first place. Um, so like, I, like the idea of this exhibit has always been kind of like brewing in the back of my head, but I've always thought that this is like a project from say maybe five years from now or something like that. So um, when I heard about the City Artist Corps, which is like a grant that um, the city of New York was giving out, um, I was like, oh, well, this, is, this might be a cool opportunity to kind of have a little bit of a seed money in order to start this, this thing. So I just applied for it without any expectation at all if it was going to be approved or not, because it was just kind of like, oh, it's just a problem that I'll think about if, you know, like, if not, then whatever. But if yes, then I had practice on how to write a grant proposal, etc, which I think is still like a learning experience. Yeah. And so I just kind of um, went for it. That's awesome. I know it was quite stressful for you to curate this exhibition. Um, and I was wondering if you can share a little bit about like the process behind you making this exhibition come to life. Yeah, yeah, of course. So like, um picking the objects is generally started with like things that like every time I go home to the Philippines what do I bring back like what is not easily found in the U.S. that I always have to have with me um so I had a long list of like maybe like a hundred objects to begin with actually and then eventually I kind of just organized them into like where are they usually found what type of objects are they and try to envision the story that they're trying to tell. I think that like the objects that we showed probably ended up being only like maybe 20 or 30, like very, very small. But I think that they are the most cohesive group of objects instead of just like a little bit all over the place. I actually was curious um, if you were able to find all the objects that uh, you displayed at your show in the US. Yes, definitely. Maybe like half of them were things that I brought back from home, um, maybe like two years ago. So the last time that I was in the Philippines was I did lowercase's very first workshop, actually. And I hosted a workshop at like uh, a university in like the Visayas region. And it's very cute Filipino way of showing their gratitude is that they gave me a care package. So most of the things that actually all of the things that was that they gave me in the care package ended up in in the exhibit and um so I think about like half of those things half of the things that ended up going are just things that I just have at home because they're like gifts from the Philippines and they're things that I intentionally brought back to the U.S. because they because I want to hold on to them (laughs) um and then a lot of other things are just kind of what my friends had like I'm like, oh, it'd be nice to have this or that. Some of them I needed to hunt down. And, um, but I think that the, 
and slowly becoming ingrained in the Filipino community in New York. And so there, there was a lot of help from my, um, from my network of friends on like volunteering, like, oh, we have this at home, yada, yada, yada. And so they brought a bunch of those things from their home and let me borrow it. That's beautiful. How did you get to, or how did you find your community, your Filipino community in New York City? Oh my gosh, actually, this is a really cute story. Um, so one of my best friends, Carla, she founded this one organization called AFSA. It's like the Association of Filipino Scientists in, in America. So when I was in, um, when I was studying at Columbia, she's getting her PhD um, right now over there. When I was studying there, it was also her first year. And I think she was just super homesick. So I was talking in Tagalog with another one of my friends and she literally followed us and like tapped us in the back and she was like excuse me but are you Filipino and we're like yeah like we're speaking in Tagalog and at first we're just kind of like who is this person and she was just like can we be friends (laughs) like it's so wholesome Mm -hmm. and I was just like yeah of course but she literally did not let us go like she asked for our Instagram or Facebook and um that's how we started being friends but she is just generally like a badass and a powerhouse in the activism space also and so she kind of brought me into her fold and opened up like this community of Filipino activists and I've just felt at home since. That's awesome yeah I personally have been intentionally making an effort to find my community because for a really long time I've actually been resisting to not be included in or to not be seen as part of this Chinese community in the U.S. Um, I think there's just been a lot of stereotypes on like what how people define a Chinese person Um, and I think a lot of times I just had this burning desire of not to be tied to that stereotype which now I know the stereotypes should not reflect on my identity Um, but I wonder if you had experienced any sort of like struggles with your identity any sort of identity crisis that you've experienced yes definitely all the time and I I think that I learned more about this identity crisis that I'm not alone based on this exhibition actually because maybe maybe this is a similarity between us but I didn't quite feel Filipino enough and I didn't feel American enough in being here when I first moved here when I was 13 it's like I was you know very Filipino but also I grew up in one of the most Americanized cities in um in the Philippines so like my accent was different and the Filipinos that I met are like children, like first generation. The stories that they've heard of the Philippines is not the same Philippines that I know of because their, their parents typically moved here when there was a lot of like power struggles back in our country. And so they see it as this like horrible, corrupt, very um, dangerous place, which there are some truths to it, <laughs> but like, because I grew up in the city, it's like I, I I just never really felt exactly like that. I don't think it's as poor as like first generation Filipino Americans think that it is one. And I, I don't think that it's as backwards as a lot of Filipino Americans who's never lived there might think that it is. And I wouldn't say that like 
not trying to generalize that that is like the main viewpoint, but it's a very distinct um, kind of vision of of what of how they saw the Philippines versus how I experienced it as a child. And I, you know, like I would like to admit that I did come from a pretty comfortable family back home. And so even even that perspective is very different from like people who migrated here in order to have a better life. But because of that, I think there was always this disconnect between me, like my experience over there versus the stories of first generation Filipino Americans. And both of both of their stories and my stories are the same. But I think that when we have this sort of conversations, generally I would always feel not quite gaslighted. Maybe that is the right word. I, I don't know. But like, but like it would just kind of be like, oh no, how did you live in Manila? It's like so dangerous there. Like, you know, like I would have friends who would say that their moms would never like let them go to Manila because they would just get kidnapped, etc. And I'm like, sure, that's a concern, but it's like, it's going to happen like one in a million, probably the same statistics as like, if you were anywhere else in the world, you know, like you're, you're no one, you're nobody special, like people are not just going to target you for, for anything. So I think that being both really kind of like, like, because of that, I, I could not relate to Philippine first generation Filipino Americans. And so so that's why it's taken me such a long time to even call myself Filipino American. Like I've I've held the American passport ever since like since moving here, but but I've never really called myself that because I didn't want to be just this American girl. And you know, like going back to the Philippines too, I know that I speak Tagalog in such a way that people know that I'm not actually Filipino. Like over there, I'm not Filipino enough. I act very different than like some of my cousins who grew up there so it's always kind of a struggle but I think that what I learned like from my friend Carla <laughs> and like from being part of the um, kind of the community of Filipino Americans here they've just been very accepting and very um, open to the idea that that we are more than just stereotypes every person is unique and you know like being yourself is kind of like a form of activism in some ways, right? And to just kind of like find power in that. That is so beautifully put. Um, yeah, I definitely think uh, the word diaspora has helped me a lot um, recently because I I think I'm definitely, I definitely still see myself as a Chinese um, instead of a Chinese American because I, I mean, just like, math wise or numbers wise like i've spent more more years more time living in china versus in the us but because i moved here for college and i think college time was such a critical time for you for someone to kind of form their philosophies and their way of like viewing the world and them, themselves and um i definitely think that i'm quite westernized or assimilated into the American culture but not as much like um I but I do think like every time I have conversations um on varying topics with my parents especially my mom um I always found myself to being a very different position or having very different perspectives so yeah I do feel that like now I have been connecting with more people like me 
uh, who also moved here for college or like when they were in their teenage year, who weren't necessarily born in the U.S. Um, I do think there is a better connection between us compared to me versus the um, Chinese Americans or American-born Chinese. Um, so yeah, I definitely resonate with that quite a lot. I, I'm, I'm so happy that you're able to find your community because I think knowing that you're not alone and being able to share your experiences with others who have had similar experiences is so important. So I know you mentioned about, um, you know, the, the objects that you have selected for your exhibition. And I was wondering if, if you could give our audience some examples of the objects that you have displayed at your show. Yeah, so the exhibit is designed in such a way that it kind of tells the story of migration, just because I think that it, it goes well with the theme. So there's three sections. It's like the things that they carried, which are essentially a collection of bags and purses and the things that um, you would bring with you in the Philippines when you're doing some things, some activities. Uh, we displayed uh, a school bag, a work bag, and then like, like just like a, a bag that you use when you go to the mall, which is a very, um, very, it's, it's essentially that's how Filipinos, th- that's like their main form of entertainment. Like malls in Asia or in the Philippines is like so big. There's like roller coasters in there, <laughs> like not even exaggerating a lot of restaurants, movies. So um, people essentially would go to the mall for, for anything when they would make plans with friends. Um, so those those were like the like that's one section. It's just like what do they usually carry when they when they go to work, when they go to school, or when they go to the mall. Um, another section is uh, the the things that they left behind, and this is essentially more of like housewares. But uh, this section is kind of highlights the differences in materials um, based on like what housewares look like in the homes in the Philippines versus the homes in the diaspora. So outside outside of the country. And the main distinction that uh, I told there in that in that display is that households in the Philippines are essentially covered in plastic. Um, whereas homes in the US and maybe in Europe or everywhere else, a lot of the housewares are made more with um natural materials you know like wood metal steel things like that and those are kind of hard to come by in the philippines and i wanted to make the distinction that plastic are all imported from somewhere else whereas the wood that you can find in the u.s or anywhere else a lot of them well, maybe not a lot of them, you know, like I, I know that we have a lot of uh, sources of wood here in the U.S. as well. But exotic hardwoods usually come from countries like the Philippines. Like our, na- our, our national tree is called the Philippine mahogany, which is like Nara. And you can only find those as furniture in um, homes of the wealthy in the Philippines. Um, and so I, I wanted to create this kind of like the things they left behind is this weird juxtaposition that while they're in the Philippines, they're surrounded by things that are exported because that's all they can afford. But when they go out of the Philippines, they're maybe a little bit closer to the natural resources of the country because you see like acacia bowls from Crate and Barrel and things like that. And they're 
mainly made in the Philippines, sources in the Philippines, and you wouldn't be able to afford to surround yourself in that sort of object living in the Philippines because of how fucked up our economy is. Yeah, that's the second section. And then the third section was more of like highlighting the intangible culture of like what stayed with you after you had migrated. Um, I invited participants or viewers of the exhibit to to weave like a community tapestry is what I'm calling it. Uh, the the ties that bind us, which is essentially I just ask them to write things that they remember from home or things that they inherited from their parents who's, who probably migrated here or things that they brought with them when they migrated. Um, intangible things that they miss. And then they just kind of wrote it in a ribbon and um, I wove it through this mesh of like a chain of rubber bands that um, is how we usually kept rubber bands in the Philippines organized. Um, if you can imagine like the American rubber band ball where you just keep on stacking them on top. We don't have that in the Philippines. What we do is that we chain them and it makes this beautiful kind of structure. Um, so I just created a giant mesh created from that to use as the, the, the thing that holds on to the words that people wrote um, as they passed through the exhibit. Yeah, I feel like uh, this community community building aspect uh, is a pretty big part of your work um, from a lot of work that I've seen that you've done. Um, and I actually found that tapestry, the community woven tapestry to be so beautiful because I think it really collectively helps people to feel not alone. And when they're doing this activity together, you're seeing this like shared identity or shared story woven through uh, this tapestry. And I was curious if you could share some of the messages, some of the things that people have written down. Yeah, so, so some of the things that sticks out, they're not necessarily positive. <laughs> um, there's one about uh, growing up as um, queer and being um, being bullied as that, which I really I don't have a lot of tolerance in just because I have brothers that are gay. And so it's just like when I when I read about that, it really kind of like hurts me in some way because I think about I think about my brother um and like what he must have like gone through um because the Philippines could be very harsh when it comes to stereotypes as well of like what what types of people are supposed to be what um another one that I thought was really cool is kind of um like this story of the street vendors Uh, um you know we don't really have I, I guess maybe in America, they can like in suburbans, they have the ice cream truck that passes by. Mm-hmm. But someone made a very, um, like, apart from writing down, writing it down in the tapestry, they told the story of like how when they were a kid, um, they can tell the time based on who the street vendor is that's passing by the street and what they're yelling or what they're selling. Um, so, like, the whole is this um, silken tofu with like brown sugar and it's maybe it's dessert but I I think it's it's just a snack and um so she she gave an example that like that street vendor usually comes around like 3 p.m and you know that when he comes it kind of signals that it's like merienda time which is like a, a snacking time um in the Philippines and then he's usually followed by 
other street vendors. Um, and so I thought that that was just very beautiful because you don't really see that anymore. Like in, in my part of the city, that, um, that experience doesn't quite exist as much. Um, and then other things that I thought was kind of really funny is that, not funny, but like um, a common way of being greeted in the Philippines is like when, you're, when your aunties or your grandma or some female figure in the family that you're visiting, instead of just saying like, oh, hi, how are you? One of the first things that they ask is like, have you eaten? And I think that that's just so like warm and welcoming. And so that stayed with them because it's such a simple um, greeting that whenever they go to like Filipino households that's still kind of like one of the ways that they know <laughs> that they're home is like instead of like hi how are you doing it's like oh have you eaten and here's food and and that automatically kind of makes them feel like they're at home. I love that so much because it reminds me of uh, the story that I think maybe a couple years back um, when I was visiting my uncle's family um, who lives now 10 minutes away from me but before it was I always had to drive two hours to see them um I just remember that that day I think it was a holiday and I was gonna stay at their place for a couple of days and I lost my key to their apartment so I had to wait in the lobby uh for a couple of hours before my aunt uh got home and so I was texting my aunt and I asked hey like I'm stuck here can you come come rescue me as soon as you can and she said um yeah, I'll be home in uh, an hour or so, but let me just go get this cake uh, first. And in the moment, I actually was pretty upset because I thought like, why would you like spend another 30 minutes just to get the cake instead of coming straight home to rescue me? But later I realized she just really wanted me to have the cake. Like she, I think it's such a way for like people from the Asian culture to show their love. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I completely agree. I think that, like, I think that feeding someone is a definite, like, a uh, love language that's like not defined in the Western culture. But like, I like, I love hanging out with friends and feeding them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like actually, maybe that's one of the reasons why, like, for example, like the culture of like when when you hang out with friends and then um you just Venmo each other like money and in some ways like before Venmo existed you know like it's always just like you just kind of take turns on who pays and for me I feel so much more love and more connection to friends that I am comfortable doing that with because it's like yeah like you just take turns but then now that like it's like you Venmo each other it almost makes the experience of hanging out with a friend a little bit more transactional yeah, I think that feeding each other, like feeding people is a is a love language. It's it's one of the ways that you show that you nurture them and you you care them and you think about their nourishment. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's also this uh, form of exchange that makes it so pure and so sincere. Because I think, like you said, I, I do feel like Venmo and other platforms pretty much just shows how capitalism is just so ingrained in our day-to-day -day life and in our culture nowadays. So I'm going to keep this in mind so that next time we hang out, you are never going to request Venmo. <laughs> I, I, we will take turns. We will take turns. The Venmo thing is so interesting because I don't remember when I started using it, but um, I think it was kind of hard for me to escape from it uh, for not using it because everyone else, all my friends are using mm -hmm. it. Um, 
yeah that was interesting yeah I have to say that was kind of a little bit of a culture shock for me because so I lived in the Philippines for a year I what was that? I think 2017 2018 and so before that like my friends in Seattle and I would just take turns on like you pay for this I pay for that kind of thing whenever we go out and um if it's like a group setting it's just like you just divide it all up or you split the check and and that was totally fine and then so I was in the Philippines for a year and then when I came back here suddenly everyone does Venmo and I was just kind of like so so shocked in some ways but like I do feel that like even if I haven't spent a lot of time with them recently that my Seattle friends and I are closer because our our friendships is is one with a little bit of room <laughs> when it comes to like to hanging out like there's there's a trust that there will be a next time and that the next time you're taking turns but whereas like I feel like some maybe New York friends or just the Venmo culture make it so that like it's just the last time we're hanging out so we're clearing all the tabs kind of thing and so so yeah it, it feels very like transactional Okay. something to consider for like ux and you know like and, and design is just like mm-hmm. and i think that that goes with my identity too is that i always think about like these design choices and the products <laughs> that we create like mm-hmm. like what culture are they building and venmo is convenient but i i do think that it made my friendships a little bit less meaningful yeah wow i'm just taking it all in now i totally agree with you when you said like um if this time you were the one who paid for the meals, there is that trust aspect. And there's also that like expectation or the the excitement of like making this as an excuse to see your friend again. And I agree. I think definitely there's a lot of things that we can do as designers that things that we should be doing to consider like what kind of culture are we creating? Um, is this the right interaction that we want people to have I know we've been talking quite a lot about like your identity and your cultural backgrounds and I do wonder if you feel your identity has impacted the way you approach design and in what way yeah I think definitely in in what ways might be more of like I'm very stubborn as far as like cultural stuff is concerned I think that like being a little bit more aware that I'm a woman of color um, is really probably the motivational factor for inspiration as far as like trying to be a design activist in as much aspects of my work as possible. You know, I think that like my identity as a Filipino American or just as, as someone that I think comes from a community that is very very much part of the American history but not never really given the credit for it I think is is one of the activism I wish to pursue in my design work which is also how this like why this exhibit ended up happening is like wanting to take space and wanting to tell stories and a lot of it also is because of the just the frustration of how most products are very Eurocentric. <laughs> and and I don't think that they're aesthetically speaking, I think that yeah, sure, they are very, very, very Eurocentric. But a lot of the products that we have has some sort of ties back to Asia as like, you know, the 
the human resources that a lot of the design firms and manufacturing companies use, a lot of the care work that comes from Asia, any source of labor coming from Asia, <laughs> really. But we don't see them. They remain these like invisible forces that I don't think that we honor. And we never design for like for that population, right? And so with the platform that I have as a designer, or at least the opportunity or maybe skill set, it's like I want to highlight those experiences or, or, or that part of like the supply chain or like the design process or whatever, because we, we always tend to create mainly for profit. You know, like we say user experience, we say human-centered, but essentially it's really just like, the human that is going to be paying for this product and um and and maybe products end up becoming eurocentric because the humans that are essentially paying for luxury items or design items are, are typically the ones that are a little bit wealthier and historically those are the ones that have some sort of proximity to to whiteness and to the european culture right and so i'm sure that that's a factor as to why objects are eurocentric and so i just want to kind of go against the grain and like highlighting my identity, where I come from, and kind of like how integral we are as part of like the whole human experience aspect of it, and try to design products or experiences to honor that. I resonated with particularly in this one piece that you mentioned about honoring the invisible factors that most people don't get to see, um, because I, me coming from like the East Asian culture, I, I do feel invisible a lot of times throughout my design education and also just my, my, my experience in the U.S. I think it's like the stereotype is so ingrained that like the made in China stereotype that like we're always behind the scene, like we're never the creators of the products, but just the producers. So I think like it was just so internalized in me that I didn't realize it was actually making an impact on how I approach my design. I think your exhibit and just your work and you as a designer and as a person and also as a, a design activist, I feel like you're really helping to push on this idea of yeah taking up the space and also making the invisible more visible. Um, and I absolutely admire that. And I, I'm curious to hear if you feel this exhibit or working on this exhibit has in any way impacted your identity or the way you view your identity at all? Probably not quite cultural identity, but I do have to say that I think that it really, I feel like it's pushing me as like my design, my design identity, like a stronger sense to pushing my philosophy as a designer, which I, I feel like I've had conversations with you about, but um, just to share is that a lot of the conversations around design is always about form versus function, whereas I really have been, especially for the past year, surrounding my work in like community building or something like that, is that I, I really want people or designers, creators, you know, anything that is putting out a product, whether that's digital or that's an object, I really want them to kind of think about like how the product that they create and manufacture really affects the culture of the society that they're giving it to. And so this exhibit kind of 
really cemented my identity in that philosophy in some ways because because the whole story of it is that these ordinary objects actually are, are like signifiers of or reflections of what the current society is in the Philippines and and in the migration of Filipinos. So uh, as a designer that's kind of really affected me a lot because the show was really well received but every day <laughs> people are kind of like there's so much gratitude from the audience for creating the space and like I, I really need to learn to be better at like accepting all of the gratitude but you know at the same time it also highlighted how much we really need a permanent space and I, I think just kind of like as a teaser or something is that it's definitely within my maybe five-year goal is to kind of keep pushing this project like that this is more than just a pop-up now like I'm I'm kind of thinking of ways to create content or keep the conversation going with the hopes and intention that in like maybe five years or so that we come up with like a mini museum Oh, I wouldn't say mini. Let's just say museum. Yep. <laughs> yeah, of like objects of like contemporary art and design, specifically highlighting the culture for it. Because, you know, like the Met exists, MoMA exists, or Museum of Art and Design exists, but it's so highbrow that it's like, I don't think that it quite connects to the everyday people to to really to really show them and make them feel that the things that they use in the daily are should be intentional or were intentionally made and are a reflection of like their daily lives. Yeah, and I think one other thing to add to what you were just saying, like not only are these design performances that are being displayed or shown at those high-end museums are very unapproachable in some way or like are quite distanced from people like us i i also feel that a lot of the designs that they're showing there are also very much like have this eurocentric aesthetics and even if there are exhibits that are focused around the eastern culture or the asian culture if they were to be displayed here a lot of times the way they're these exhibits are curated are very much through a Eurocentric lens or a very westernized lens because, quote-unquote, everything that doesn't belong to the Western culture needs to be curated or needs to be told through a way that's more palatable to the Western audience. I'm sure some people might remember this from a couple of years back, um, but there was an exhibit at the Met. Um, it's, it was called China Through the Looking Glass, where it received a lot of criticism and because of the way they curated the exhibit, which was very westernized and in a lot of the, the ways they displayed the objects felt very appropriated and twisted. There's pretty much a desire and a need to have museums to tell the stories of various cultures in a much more authentic way and in a much more permanent way. Well, one thing is that like, you, you know, like it's, it's kind of like a balance. I, I, I feel that when you're curating something, it's like how opinionated should you be? Like, like how are you telling the story and is it neutral or not? Like I would just put it out there that whatever I create in the future I wanted to have a very distinct voice and I wanted to be a reflection of like my values instead of just completely like echoing what is being 
spoken mainly in the media, et cetera. Like I, I want to bring up that like the Brooklyn Museum, I see them trying to kind of um, decolonize their objects and curations and stuff like that. So there was this one set of a tea set that they have displayed and it is the most racist tea set. <laughs> like you've probably seen me like shit on this on social media and story. Like the first time that I, I, I saw it, I mean, they like, you know, so basically it's like, like the sugar cup or sugar vessel has like an illustration of a black man. And then like the, the teapot itself has like Chinese men because of like tea leaves. It's, it's insane. And then like the milk, I think has like a goat. So it was very like literally objectifying races mm-hmm. and connecting it into objects. And the description of these objects actually were, you know, like kind of told that story that, Mm. you know they did admit that this is like a racist piece of object but for me that was not enough for me this object should have been displayed where it's not behind a glass stand but rather that it should be like broken into the ground and then maybe there was a picture of what it originally was like like if I was a curator of the Brooklyn Museum, that's how I would display this. It's like I would make a statement that this is not okay. These are not the artifacts that we put behind glass cases and that these histories should be erased. Museums don't do that. They mm-hmm. they tend to choose the neutral ground of just displaying but not really saying anything. And I, I, I find that disappointing because they're cultural institutions and we learn a lot from them. Mm-hmm. So in the future whenever my whenever my museum comes to life like i i would try not to probably not to even go to museums for a year just so i'm not influenced by how things are done yeah and 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 i mean like think about like um think about the richness of language in the whole world and the richness of language in the people that visits the brooklyn museum those that can't understand english would only see the symbols behind it and i i don't know how good their translate the translations of the descriptions are mm-hmm. but i think that there there can still be so much miscommunication and so like a, a much much more in your face um, way of communicating that this is not okay would be to not put it on a glass pedestal and just like have it be left broken on the floor, you know? So that's such a good point. Yeah. Do you think it has to do with the people behind the curation? Are you getting at as far as like how diverse the yeah. people are <laughs> yeah. in the background? You know, I, I, I would say that I think that that's partly it, but I don't think that that's all of it. I would, I, I would make the assumption that just the education of museums generally being very Eurocentric from the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. um, I think probably influences the philosophies on how to display objects you know like maybe like a, a template probably was started 50 60 years ago that says all objects should be placed on a glass pedestal and I don't think that they had anything I would imagine that they probably didn't have a template on like how do we show things that should not be shown or that are kind of questionable in nature you know like yeah I don't think that they had anything like that so I wouldn't say it's just, it's, I, I have no idea what the diversity of the team is behind the Brooklyn Museum. I think that general, I think generally that they're, um, they are pretty mindful, but I think that 
just because education is such a westernized idea in the system that we live in. I, I do feel that that creates a lot of biases for us or a lot of things that like, oh, I don't think we can do this because this is not how things have been done before kind of mentality. And, and that's probably just a part of it. It's like, Maybe someone said, like, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought that this was not, that this is not okay. Like, I'm sure someone in their team probably thought that, like, oh, something's a little bit problematic about it. But someone else in their team probably also said, but this is how things have always been done. And the best we could do is to do this and this and this. So how has your life been since you finished this exhibit? Um, Did this exhibit lead to any new creative opportunities for you? Um, I've been going on a lot of interviews, <laughs> um, and not just like media or anything. I, I think there was, there was a lot of students actually that came to the exhibit to, to study it and to write papers and homework about it, which I think is very cool. So it's been very, um, inspiring, um, as far as like leading to new creative opportunities. I think I mentioned that it's my intention to make this permanent, Um, maybe in the next five years Um, and I'm thinking of ways on how to keep the conversation going in the meantime I'm not sure if that means like a newsletter or something digital that could hopefully earn some money so that I could have a museum in five years Um, but apart from that I think just like the kind of natural sources of inspiration from having conversations with other people but for now I mean it's only been a couple of days since the exhibit um at the time of this recording it's only been a couple of days so I've just kind of been resting and trying to take a step back uh digesting everything that I learned in the past month um for for which is how long the exhibit was open but like I've been working on this since maybe June, just like curation and like all the the work that you have to do before you find a place and a space and all that sort of stuff. So I think for the next couple of weeks, I just want to update my portfolio, not take on any new creative work, finish off the semester with my students, take a well-deserved rest and then and then hopefully come back to 2022 much more refreshed and motivated and ready to get to work amazing thank you so much for this inspiring conversation anna and thank you for all the work you do to help create a much more culturally enriching and equitable world i can't wait to see what you bring to us next thank you so much danielle Thank you for joining me on another episode of Push and Play. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us as well. I look forward to having you join my next conversation to learn and reflect together. See you next time.